Okay, we are on Matthew 2, 27 and 28. And I think we did touch on this last week, but it was right at the end. We were mostly on new wine and old wineskins. So, Christian, would you read uh, verses 23 to 28? Okay. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along began to make their way along while the heads of grain while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest, and he also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was not the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. I wonder if you've really understood this story. We understand it kind of in an overall sense, but I wonder if we really understand it sentence by sentence. What do you see in here that would shed any light on salvation and the atonement? Well, I think um, it seemed according to the Pharisees that salvation was like a, there was a checklist of things that you need to do to be saved. I mean, it, it, I, I, at least it, they, they convey it in that manner. It seems to come across that way to us. There's actually a whole perception of themselves as God's chosen people and that salvation was rooted in being able to trace their ancestry back to Abraham or at least back to the second temple period so that the time of the Zadok priests, so that they uh, were legitimate sons of Abraham and not having been diluted by foreign marriages and and things like that. Uh, You may remember that in Ezra and Nehemiah, when they come back from Babylon and and Persia, that uh, they they had this problem of intermarriage, and and they became very, very rigid about who you can marry and, and... and um, so they believed that there were the, those who were really the chosen, who, were, had, who had salvation. And then there were those who were not so chosen. And then there were those who, who were, it was very doubtful they were chosen at all. And those were the people of the land who they viewed as not being able to trace their lineage back. And out of all of that, with the Pharisees, it, it came down to... Um, those with this this salvation could keep the law and could understand it, and, and so they enjoined all these rules. There were over 400 rules just for keeping the Sabbath alone. And if you read the Talmud, uh, it's, it's boring and it's fascinating at the same time. <laughs> There's just everything from how you take, to whether you can take anything out of the oven, whether you can... Uh, put anything on the stove, whether you can tie up your hair, whether you can uh, even walk out on the street. Um, You know, there's just a host of rules 
and they're nitpicky to us, to our way of thinking. Yeah. You know, it's just like if I had to spend all day Sabbath thinking about those rules and what I could and couldn't do, I would probably feel like I hadn't kept Sabbath at all, that I'd just been uh, in some yeah. kind of work cycle <laughs> trying hard to keep these rules. And, and you understand that, that I grew up in a modality very much like this. I mean, we didn't have a long list of rules, except that you know, we weren't supposed to do anything to break the Sabbath, and, and that included anything we thought. And I remember worrying as a child all day, all Sabbath day, that I was breaking the Sabbath. I mean, that was the mode I was in. And when I, I got to know God and the Sabbath automatically transformed, I mean, when, once his character was transformed to me so that I saw him as he is, then the Sabbath became transformed. And the way I kept it became transformed because my relationship with him was absorbing me. It, it was my focus. And uh, so I remember one day I was sitting in Sabbath school room one, uh, listening to my teacher. Uh, this was in, when I was in college here. And he was talking about the Sabbath keeping. And he, something came up about climbing trees being forbidden in some Adventist circles. This was, you understand, this is how far things had gone. Um, and, and you could maybe wade in a stream, but you couldn't swim. Uh, you know, things like that. And I remember sitting there, and I had just the Sabbath before, I'd gone with a group of, of fellow students, and we had hiked up to past the, what was then the farm. And we had gone... Uh, all the way out to the edge of Helmer's property. And if you take uh, the road to the left, you know, it goes on into the woods back there. Uh, and we had gone along that road just far enough to find wonderful shade trees. And so we decided to eat our picnic lunch under those shade trees. Well, after we ate our picnic lunch, uh, several of us climbed trees. I didn't because I'm not a tree climber. <laughs> <laughs> But I swung from a branch and, and had fun with everybody else. And we got through doing that. And we sat, sat down and sang hymns. I mean, it seemed the most appropriate thing to do. We were glorying in God's creation, mm-hmm. thoroughly enjoying it. And, and to praise him seemed to be very automatic. And I remember as the teacher mentioned this, and he wasn't mentioning it favorably, like, you know, you shouldn't climb trees. He was just talking about our preoccupation with... Uh, checklist religion and I remember thinking I did all that last Sabbath and I didn't even think I was breaking the Sabbath I didn't even and I I thought about the now and the before when I had would would have been worrying my head off over I broke the Sabbath I honestly think that that kind of Sabbath keeping is breaking the Sabbath it's profaning the Sabbath because the Sabbath, we're meant to be, the Sabbath is meant to be a delight. Mm-hmm. Which, which suggests then that salvation is not about performance. It is about relationship. Mm-hmm. And, and so we have that here in the Sabbath. Anything else that you get out of this that might help us? Just the idea of eating the bread, even if it's special consecrated consecrated bread, bread, 
it's for your health. Like you have to eat to live, and it's almost like saying, "Well, of course they're allowed to eat on the Sabbath. They're allowed to take care of themselves to not die." And it just seems that Jesus could be making a comparison with just eating that bread and salvation. Yeah. Don't don't deprive someone of food on the Sabbath.、Mm-hmm. You know, the Pharisees、uh, double-crossed themselves here. They had a rule that said you shall not fast on the Sabbath day. <laughs> <laughs> so so by t- by chawing on them for you know eating, <laughs> threshing. Well, it wasn't the eating that was bothering them. That was the pre- preparation of the food.、Yeah. But still. They, that, if they intended them not to do that, even if they had to fast on the Sabbath day, then they were double-crossing themselves. So the Sabbath was created for human beings, and human beings weren't created for the Sabbath. Is there a principle there? I mean, I think, I think it's it's showing us that、um, God created it so that we can enjoy it, not that we were made. To obey it. Is that true of just the Sabbath, or is that true of everything? I think it's the entire law. I mean, the, the if you look at the commandments, there those are just general life principles, essentially, and then we we kind of view it as like, oh no, am I breaking this? Like like、um, there's a lot of condemnation that that can come from like within the church or other people when we're breaking something, and we kind of are like, I feel like the Pharisees, they're Because of how much Israel has endured,、um, and just in the sense of like they kind of become paranoid, so they make all these rules. Because if you look at like we've been reading Ezekiel, and how many times like God has told them like you disobeyed, I will do all these things, and then you will know that I am God. And like there's all these severe punishments that come with them, and so like okay, I don't want to disobey, I don't want to get on God's bad side, so we're making all these rules so that we can avoid punishment rather than I want to seek and find God. And find I've learned my lesson. I'll never do it again. <laughs> <laughs> the problem is that that's the that not the way to get obedience, is it?、No. Which of course opens up a whole can of worms as to why God used that method. If、yeah. you know, it isn't the way to get obedience. I'm afraid that'll have to wait until we get through the whole plan of salvation and then come back around to the Bible, looking、yeah. at those、uh, kinds of problems. But. Yeah, I I really see this as a as an overarching principle that God is only Lord of what is beneficial to human beings, and that's what His lordship is involved with. It isn't how much I can have authority over you, and it's not how much I can control you. It's not how much I、uh, can make you fear me. It is I'm Lord because I made it for you. To be a benefit for you.、Hmm. Okay, let's go to the next, and this is going to continue the Sabbath、uh, subject.、Uh, Shalina, you want to read、uh, verses one to six. He entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand. Get up and come forward. And he said to them, "Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill?" But they kept silent. 
after looking round at them with anger. Grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and the hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. You'd think after Jesus cutting words, they wouldn't dare. <laughs> it was obvious that their Sabbath keeping was about destruction. What better way can you demonstrate it? My version has, uh, for verse 4, it, he said to them, Is it legal on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? I love that statement. Is it legal? When you think about it, is there anything, is there any good thing a person can do that's illegal? Actually, it's been tested and tried. Who was it? I saw this on Facebook. Uh, somebody, some woman was trying to feed the homeless in a major city, in, was it Orlando? It was somewhere, I think, in Florida. And she got in trouble with the law. I don't remember. Yeah, it's like, I don't remember the, the whole case and the details of it. Mm -hmm. uh, but there was some ordinance that they felt she was breaking. And I don't remember now the details. But normally in our society, we can do any good thing legally. So when Jesus asks this question, he's saying, uh, <clears throat> is your law forbidding doing good? And if it is, there's something wrong with it, isn't there? <laughs> and I, I'd like you to notice also, and this, this does apply to atonement, looking around them with anger, deeply grieved at their unyielding hearts or the hardness of heart. Mm -hmm. Anger there is a grief. Um, this is one of the few places, if not the only place, where Jesus is said to be angry. Now, I know you're going to immediately think of cleansing the temple, but mm -hmm. the, the stories about cleansing the temple never say that he got angry. So this is one of the few places where it says that he got angry, uh, and he's grieved. Which, uh, to me, just takes me right back to Genesis 6, where mm -hmm. it grieved him to his heart, and there's nothing said about God being angry there. So he, here he is. And notice um, this man with a withered hand. I remember this discussion in, pa in uh, preaching class at uh, Andrews University. The teacher brought up the case. No, a student brought up the case. I guess we were talking about Sabbath keeping or what have you, and he brought up the case of a, of a woman whose son had a high fever. And she was debating whether it would be wrecking the Sabbath to go get antibiotics for him, or to take him to a doctor. I guess it was take him to a doctor. Mm -hmm. And he told her that if she trusted God, God would not allow that fever to do any damage. And the teacher 
said, I would have gone out and bought the antibiotics for her. <laughs> I firmly believe that God gave us medicine to use. Well, you know, it used to be, and, and this is the way uh, I grew up in the church, it used to be, unless it was an emergency, you did not seek medical help on the Sabbath. Well, does this man need to go to ER for his withered hand that he's had for who knows how many years? And I, I have to ask the question, were any of Jesus' miracles on Sabbath yes. emergencies? The ones I think of, they were all chronic illnesses. The, the man like by the pool of Bethesda had been there for 38 years. Was the, was the blind man held on the Sabbath? Yes. The man born blind. He was born blind. He'd been blind all his life. The man with the withered hand. The woman bent over with scoliosis. <laughs> That's what strikes me, is that Jesus deliberately picked people to heal who were not emergency cases. I had a chance to use that in a discussion about whether it was lawful <clears throat> for PUC students to go build homes on the Sabbath day in Lake County. And uh, my pointing that out seemed to change the discussion uh, because it had never occurred to anybody before that Jesus' example here is taking care of need wherever need is found and making life better. So here, here is Jesus who does this with very good reason. I mean, the reason he uses, is it legal on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? I mean, that should be a no-brainer. And what do they do? They go out and try to destroy him. You know, to prove their point that they want to kill on the Sabbath. Day. And, 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 and it, what they've done is take Sabbath and completely divorced it from its original setting. What is its original setting? Creation. Creation. Creation, Creation is what about what? Life. life. Giving life, <laughs> not destroying. And if they knew anything about the cradle of that story and its antithesis in the Babylonian creation where destruction <laughs> takes place before creation can occur, they know that the highlight of Genesis 1 to 2 is that God creates life without destroying anything. There's no violence. There's no destruction. So this is about life. And I, is it possible that we could look at this story and the Sabbath as actually now all about salvation? This is the paradigm of salvation. That Jesus is about giving life, not destroying. And the Sabbath should be, therefore, about giving life and not destroying. See, we're going somewhere with this whole plan of salvation. Well, the, yeah, the Sabbath and itself is a sign it. of redemption. Pardon? The Sabbath itself is a sign of redemption and creation. Yes, it is. Uh, that you, you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And that that sanctifies, setting apart, be holy, is intimately tied with giving life. Um, I've heard it opposite in evangelical circles. Uh, the holiness of God is his, his anger against sin uh, and his, his righteousness that won't brook sin, and therefore he will destroy you uh, if you do not repent and uh, allow him to save you. 
I find that paradigm very problematic because there's two places in Isaiah that say they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. And in Hosea 11, God says, uh, I am God and not man, and I will not come. And, and the Hebrew is muddy there, but it's something about I will not come for judgment, I will not come for destruction. I am the Holy One, and I don't destroy. So this is, this is extremely pivotal uh, and, and important, and we need to keep it in mind as we move forward. You know, I'm going to skip Mark 3, 19 to 30, because I believe we dealt with that in Matthew's Gospel. So we are now on page 12. And we are in Mark 4, and we're in verses 30 to 32, and we're going counterclockwise, so Tara, would you read, please? Again he said, What shall we say the kingdom of God is like, or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. So this is about the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus has another way of saying this. Do you remember what it is? Kingdom of heaven? No. For the mustard seed. If you have oh, faith of a mustard seed. If you seed. have faith, the supplies of a mustard seed. So he's he's saying, what's a good image for God's kingdom? What parable can I use to explain it? He's always trying to grasp get them to grasp this with their imagination and then milk it for all it's worth. Uh, I don't know if you're like me, but when I'm going through a difficult time, I find the most comforting thing is to create a parable around what I'm going through. <laughs> uh, I don't know if it's just me or not, but um, if, if, I can, if I can visualize some kind of metaphor or parable uh, to describe my feelings or to describe what I need or, or whatever, uh, it, it transforms that whole thing. It makes it easier to bear somehow. And, and Jesus is talking to people, most of the people he's talking to are people who are day laborers who uh, barely eke out an existence. And they feel robbed, they feel downtrodden, they feel beaten uh, by society. Uh, they're not homeless, but they're the next thing to it. You know, and they, they really feel uh, disenfranchised and marginalized. So these are people who are struggling uh, and then on top of that, they're told because of the people of the land that they don't really have, a, they're not in, they're out in terms of the plan of salvation. So what are we going to learn from the mustard seed? Now, uh, our mustard seed is not the smallest seed. The one that Jesus is talking about is. So um, I don't know if you've ever fed bird seed. <laughs> I feed birds around my house. And uh, there's, there's seeds that are just very, very small, but they're the ones the little birds just love to eat. So what can we learn from the smallest seed? And in Jesus' day, the mustard plant grew to almost like a tree. 
from this little tiny seed. What can we learn from that? It becomes the largest of all vegetable plants. It produces such large branches that the birds in the sky are able to nest in its shade. I mean, there's, um, in the Old Testament, or in the New as well, God likes to choose people um, in positions where, I mean, there's a lot of stories where he chooses people that are not in great positions of power. And that, I mean, you look at David, who's a shepherd. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's not just a shepherd, but it appears that he's an illegitimate son of Jesse. Um, if if you read, if you look, if you take what he says in what is it, Psalm thirty-two, uh, in sin did my mother conceive me. It, there's a possibility, anyway, that he was an illegitimate child, and that's why they didn't even call him to the feast, the family feast. You know, they would normally left. Another shep hired hand to to watch over the sheep while David was at the feast, but they didn't even bother to call him to the feast because he's an illegitimate child. His brothers didn't want him as part of the inheritance, um, and so on. Uh, yeah, he's he's really down at the bottom, isn't he? Yeah, he likes to use those use those people and then be able to do um, things that you would never suspect through the through those people, and I think. Um, for the kingdom of God, it's some um, another parable is, or not parable, but Jesus likes to use is that to make yourself seem smaller, to be a servant as well. So there's both the dynamics I think that play into the mustard seed. That he he does great things through people, through people of low position, and then also that through people who consider themselves to be of low position. Yeah, this this thing of privilege. You know where we we really think ourselves uh, deserving of certain things is is a scary thing because it insulates us from need. It insulates us from even considering that that we have a responsibility and obligation to help people who who don't have our privilege, mm -hmm. and uh, and consequently, Jesus and and the kingdom of heaven passes by people who have that kind of attitude. Uh, why? Because they don't have a need. And how can God use them if without a need, a place to, to fill them with his love? I'm more and more convinced that we were created to receive love and to share it. That, that was our, the main way we were created to be. And that we are not authentic any other way. And that once we adopt the, the Luciferian attitude of pride, we close off that need. We become the most important thing on earth. We become uh, self-sufficient, uh, capable of doing it ourselves. And then we close ourselves off from love. There's, there's no way in. Uh, and we become fake. <laughs> fake counterparts of what we were supposed to be. A creation. Isn't, uh, isn't Jesus quoting Daniel 4? With the parable of the seed, mustard seed? Yeah, because he's actually quoting part of Daniel 4, which is, and you were just talking about pride. And, uh, oh, oh, you're... Not, 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 not only that, but it also, he actually, uh, the part where it says, uh, it becomes uh, basically under the shade thereof, the birds of heaven can find shelter. Uh, that's like a direct reference to Daniel 4, is it? 
I think you're right. Um, and then it, it, just how you were saying too with pride, like maybe there's some connection there with like Nebuchadnezzar's pride and like his kingdom being cut down because it says that his it compared his kingdom to um, a tree that kind of grew up and it, yeah. all the birds of heaven found shelter. Yeah, right, right. The images. Oh, that's 11. that's. It is a kingdom of God too. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, well, it's the kingdom. Kingdom. What Jesus is taking is the kingdom of Babylon, which is the prototype of the Luciferian model. The king of Babylon, to do a convoluted way of getting there, uh, the king of Babylon in Isaiah 14 is not named, and the king of Babylon is an epithet for Marduk, the patron god of Babylon. And Marduk is this kingly, powerful deity. Uh, representing kind of the the uh, synthesis of everything uh, that we have invented in terms of power on earth, and he be, and because the Bible says that the Israelites, I mean, the Bible says that uh, false gods that the Israelites worshipped were demons. You can make a direct correlation between Marduk and, and Satan, I think, a roundabout way. So this is, this is the counter-kingdom, Daniel 4, the counter-kingdom. So Jesus takes the counter-kingdom and says, well, I'm going to be as close to that as possible, but there's a chief difference. It's the smallest, the mustard seed, that the tree isn't the tree in Daniel 4 a cedar? That sounds right. Yeah, I don't know. Is, I believe there? it's a cedar. Yeah, he's right. He's there. Right oh, okay. Yeah. I lost it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it probably is, yeah. You're referring to who is a cedar? The tree. Is. Does it say what kind of tree it is? Um, no, it doesn't. No, it just says that there was a tree that grew large and became strong. Maybe there's a okay. And then it says, that, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches. And all living creatures fed themselves from it. But it doesn't say what kind of tree. It just says there was a tree in the midst of the earth. Yeah. And the tide was but, it, but it was a tree. It wasn't a vegetable plant. This is a vegetable oh. plant. Okay. Mustard. Mm-hmm. Okay. But it grows something like a tree from this tiny little seed. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it, it's a counter. It's like Jesus is taking that parable and turning it upside down. No, you don't have to be a Nebuchadnezzar to be in the kingdom. The real kingdom is made up of vegetables. Kind of like veggie tails. <laughs> it's a very humble... And, and that, by the way, if you compare that with Daniel 2, the rock cut out without hands is just a rock. I mean, here you have this image of gold and silver and iron and or brass and iron mm-hmm. and then you have clay it's like the more superior we think we are I mean we are the clay right mm-hmm. the more superior we think we are the less we are of, of stability and real strength uh, but the rock just this ordinary rock has tremendous power to strike the feet of the image, grind it to powder, iron, a rock grinding iron to powder, I mean, that's just ludicrous. And the way it does it, though, is to grow and grow 
and grow until mm. it becomes a mountain. So it's, it's very counterintuitive from everything we've been taught in, in society. And you're right, the main, that one of the great themes of the Old Testament is that God takes the, the insignificant, the marginalized, the not first in the kingdom to accomplish great things. And, and they, like in the, um, the stories in Genesis, you know, it isn't, it isn't um, Reuben who becomes the stellar, uh, stellar uh, son of Jacob. It is Joseph. And it isn't Judah, even, who is a real stellar son. Uh, it's Joseph. You know, so this, this constant uh, aborting the plans that human beings have is all part of the kingdom. Anything else in the parable of the mustard seed before we move on? Okay, let's go to uh, chapter 8. And we're going to go to 34, 38. And I'm sorry, I've forgotten your name. Uh, Jordan. Jordan. Yes. Jordan, you have your Bible out? Oh, my, my electronic Bible. Your electronic Bible, that's okay. fine. Okay. <laughs> Mark eight thirty four to 38. Could you read that for us, please? And having called near the multitude with his disciples, he said to them, Whoever does will to come after me, let him disown himself, and take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever may will to save his life shall lose it, and whoever may lose his life for my sake and for the good news' sake, he shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he may gain the whole world and forfeit his life? Or what shall a man give as an exchange for his life? For whoever may be ashamed of me and of my words and this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man may also shall be ashamed of him, when he may come in the glory of his Father with the holy messengers. How does losing our lives save us? Uh, early, early Christians <laughs> in the second century took this very seriously, literally, I should say. And they begged to be martyred so that they could have salvation. Better resurrection, <laughs> yeah. A better resurrection. Uh, they they literally pled to be martyred. So people become masochistic. Or, I mean, like, you know, there's been branches where they kind of wish to harm themselves so that they can have purification. It's, yeah, it, it's a similar principle. It's this "I got to do it myself" kind of thing, and I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about at all. Uh, so, what is he talking about? How does losing our lives save us? Uh, well, it reminds me of that one kind of, I don't know if you want to call it a parable, but uh, when he said that unless a seed dies uh, in the ground, it, it doesn't give life unless it first is buried and dies. So maybe that's kind of like a principle where uh, there's this thing of um, a losing of self, um, and, that's, and that's when life comes. When like Jesus' life, I think, is the example of that, where he never really thought um, or was concerned with himself. Like he, when he was dying on the cross, you know, Satan was tempting him. You know, through through the um, through um, the leaders of, of Jerusalem. You know, the people who were there, like save yourself, save yourself. And all throughout his life, Satan was doing that. Um, 
But Jesus was more concerned about the salvation of others, so he kind of lost himself in that. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's uh, one way you could you could think of it. Um, let's lo- use an analogy from infancy and childhood. When a baby is born, if if you were to give them birth in a bathwater, or, or or in a, in a kind of pool, they would be able to immediately swim. And I saw this actually illustrated in, in a family that lives near me. Uh, they had a little, a little boy, and before he was two, he was out riding a bike. Now, this was a bike without wheels. He, he had to use his feet to get around. Uh, but he was out riding his little bike, totally effortlessly. He would coast downhill before he was two. He would coast downhill, not a, not a steep hill, but he would coast, and his legs going, uh, not, not actually not his legs going, but, well, he would because he'd be, he'd be pushing the bike and he would hit the speed bump and go right over it and keep upright and keep going and I would stand there in amazement watching him now how can this kid do this a few times he took a tumble and that wasn't so pleasant Um, but he still got back up and, and rode his bike well now he's three and a half and I've noticed that he's somewhere, he's become self-aware and a little more focused on himself. And he doesn't do things so naturally anymore. It's more, I've got to control this, I've got to do this, I've got to reach it, instead of just doing it and living it and being And I think, I think that, that this is not the thing itself. This is just an analogy that if we were always connected to love, we were always filled with the love of God, always giving, giving, giving to other people, we would not, we would, not, we would stop our self-awareness in that, we would stop focusing on ourselves. And we would be totally lost in giving to others. And then receiving so that we could give. So that it, it, there's, the Chinese call it chi, Mm-hmm. When, the, when the body, the organs, and everything all are doing what they're supposed to be, and your core is is uh, central, and, and you can um, there's nothing obstructing anything, nothing blocking it. Well, I think spiritually there's the same thing available. That if we really, if we really die to self or put self aside or whatever it is we, metaphor we want to use and we receive the love of God and we become filled with that love and stop focusing, hyper, obsessing, shall we say, obsessing on ourselves, then we would naturally carry out the kingdom. And that's what, that's what, that's what salvation really is. We know, that's why John says that we know we have passed from death into life because we love the brothers and sisters. That's, I think, what Jesus is pointing to, isn't it? I think also, like, when he says, like, whoever loses life for my sake, I feel like he's also implying, like, not necessarily that you have to um, be a martyr, but I think that you're willing to put yourself out there and willing to do things for the sake of the gospel that it may cost your life. You don't, you don't know if it, if it will or not, but 
do those things with saying that this um, this is greater than than who I am. This is this is mm-hmm. this has more significance than just my life. Essentially, and then he says that those who lose it for my sake will will save it. Mm-hmm. So I think there's that just willingness to put to put your yeah. life on the line. For that. Yeah. And I, that's something I think our society just does not comprehend. That's why to society it looks like you're lost because mm-hmm. you're not conforming to it. Mm-hmm. We our society is is really all about self protection. Uh, in fact, uh, this same family. Uh, with this little boy, uh, the mother was telling me one day that, you know, they, that she had read where psychologists are concerned that we have created such a safe generation that they're afraid to take risks. Mm-hmm. And that if you want your child to grow up to be a risk taker, an adventurer, someone who's willing to, to go out on a limb, uh, you have to, when they're ch- children, not protect them so much. And that was why they let this child go on his bike <laughs> downhill. Uh, unfortunately, he chose a very, t- a very long hill and steep hill <laughs> to try to go out on, and that was the limit. And the mother yeah. went running after him and, and pulled him back. But <laughs> nonetheless, there is there's this fine line. Um, if we protect ourselves for ourselves, we're lost. If we protect ourselves for, and for the sake of others, we're saved. You see what, what the difference is. One is this way and the other is this way. So one is focused in, the other is focused out. Well, this is a good note to end on. So, it's our prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for all that you've done for us, all that you've given to us, that you have exemplified in your life on earth the very principle of the kingdom of dying, of resurrecting, of growing, and providing shade for others. We pray that we may follow in your path, that we may live the life that you want us to live and to die the death that you need us to die and that we need to die. May it not be a death of wrenching pain as though it were a grievous thing, but a joyful laying down our lives in a daily manner as we seek to serve you and to serve others. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.